0: Welcome, um, if you're old or new, um, part of Parkland Baptist Community Church. Can we swap over to the Apple TV? Have we got anything up there? Excellent. Hey, we've been meandering our way through a mission statement. I was going to do a Waitangi Day thing. Um, That'll come next week, because I had the dates messed up. Um, We've been wandering our way through the mission statement, and what I'd like to do today is just spend a little bit of time looking at a portion of it. Um, In the last few weeks, we've spent some time looking at what it is to be together, then last week we looked at how it might be to grow together, what maturity might look like, and um, had a bunch of suggestions in there. Did anyone try any of those suggestions? Excellent. I can see a hand. Oh, I can see a few hands. I'm not going to ask you how you got on. The thing with those is they, they're always a bit of a, a punch. You have a go. Here are some of the suggestions we had um, for something to try. to so kneel and pray three times today, to have a meal with others each day, to um, have your phone off for an hour a day, um, and and to start with scripture in the day before you use your phone. That was a daily thing, and a weekly thing was to try and have an hour's conversation with a friend. Limit the amount of media that you watch, okay, which I think is particularly tricky in today's world, but limit it to four hours a week, which it might be a bit hard for many, and to fast for something for twenty-four hours and then to try and have a Sabbath. Not all of these things, but it was suggested. Here's something you could try because part of the art of living is to try and figure out who do I want to be, who does God, who is God calling me to be, and to try things. And it's okay to try things and fail. I certainly wouldn't be here if um, if it wasn't. But um, so we've spent a, a little bit of time looking at being together, a little bit of time at looking at, at growing together, and the last portion of our vision statement talks about together seeking gospel renewal, which is. Admittedly, slightly odd language together speaking, seeking gospel renewal. People didn't really talk about gospel renewal until relatively recently. And last year we looked at the verses that are in Revelations that talk about the promise of a new heaven and earth and noticed that both in the Hebrew in the Old Testament and in the Greek, the word chosen wasn't the word for brand new, but the word used for renewed. And that's significance is why you might talk about gospel renewal. Aside from the language here, you might say, "Well, what's um, uh, yep, what's um, what's God's big plan? What has got up to? We're complex humans; lots of things are going on in one time. But often, um, you can see the 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 picture of the onion, and and we're creatures of layers. But there are some sociologists who suggest that, but." Uh, Behind our behaviours is our worldview, and a layer deeper than that is our reasoning and a layer deeper than that is our story. So one of the questions we could ask is, if the question is what has God up to, then it's a question of what is God's story? What's the story we're part of? In Andrew Ollerton's book, The Bible, um, A Story That Makes Sense of Life, he tells the story of the Bible like this. He starts with origins. This has got questions about, answers questions like, Where do we come from? Why are we here? And it tells us that creation is good and humans are good, at least at the start, and then there is an arrival of evil and death. Origins are quite important. The next step is Exodus. God picks out a person, Abraham, and his descendants, and they all wind up enslaved in Egypt. And then there's a rescue and a journey out of slavery and out of being trapped. A journey that's largely connected to a search for freedom. And the journey involves stuff about getting out of destructive patterns and how to live into it, enter into a way of living that is free. And during this phase, God seems to say, I want to make you the people who walk God's way, so that others can look at you and say, God is like this. You're going to be a signpost. Then, of course, the next phase is. Of the big picture of the Bible, while they get into the Promised Land, they have a brief period of peace under David and Solomon, and then it all goes to pot. They are eventually forced from their homeland and taken into exiles into Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and um, and later on Assyria. And Israel's longing for home echoes through this time period. This is um, Andrew Olerton says this is about the time when there is a cry for peace and righteousness. And all sorts of odd things happen here. This is when a lot of the books of the Torah actually get written down. And then we have the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus being God's love in person, who heals the sick and raises the dead and puts the marginalised centre stage. And after he dies, is resurrected and returns to heaven, then his presence gets released in a whole new way in a, whole bunch, in a bunch of um, Jews but then actually slaves and masters and females and males and Gentiles and Jew as one family and this is the part of the story where we fit God's spirit still at work in the world today and we have a part to play and then he says home the end of the story has us at home and it is our hope we are hope-oriented people. Without a desirable future, we lose our, the will to live. And at a time that is complex, when there are lots of fears and uncertainties for the environment, economic ones, sociological ones, the Bible speaks hope over our story. It concludes with visions of a remade humans inhabiting a perfect world. Paradise lost will be regained. This story gives resources to live a bold and generous life. This is the big story of the Bible, and this is what God is on about. What do you think? And interesting how different this story looks. If you happen to be in the time of exile, where you have no home, where you're not in charge, wouldn't it be good to be able to look forward and say, oh, yeah, but the story leads here? Which I mention in part because, actually, for many people, that phase of exile is often what they think now looks like but look at just a little bit more detail in here abraham gets chosen and gets told i will make you into a great nation and i will bless you we like that part i will make your name great awesome and you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you i will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you so that chosenness that set apartness isn't just for him there's a very clear sign here. You will be a blessing and everybody on the earth will be blessed through you. And it's not unpacked in this bit how that's going to look. But later on we start to see there's a sense that other people should look at the people of Israel and say, oh, this is what your God, the true God is like. This is woven into what it is to be a Jew and it's woven into what it is to be part in church. So much so that, do you remember a while back we used to talk about missional church I had somebody say, um, that's like saying, I'm going to talk about a female woman. She said, actually, it's built into the nature of church, that actually it's not just for you. You are blessed to be a blessing. It has this outward look. In Peter, we're told, we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. The priest is the one who stands between the people and God. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Interesting phrase about what our sinful desires do to us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Quite strong words to write to someone who might be being persecuted by a Roman emperor. Live in a way that you show what God is like. Okay, let's zoom in and think about New Zealand. Linda and I, I often talk about a time spent in Hong Kong because it was very formative for me. We came back from Hong Kong to New Zealand and I wound up doing study at Kerry College with Auckland University and thinking, I thought, well, we're going to do this and then we're going to head off overseas again. And as I went through, I became very aware, oh, there's a mission field in New Zealand and we're not doing brilliantly. There was a sense that there's fantastic Christians, but actually, is the church growing and thriving? And although you could point to maybe this one or that one, actually, not so much. That was 20 years ago. Um, this is a graph, I've shown it to you once before, of um, the uh, number of people who declare in the census that they are Christian and the number of people who are no religion. And what you can see is that the no religion is rapidly grown, and um, but also that the Christian has been in a decline since the early 80s. It's, it's slow, but it's ticking away, and probably most Christians are aware of this. We don't like this. Sorry, this doesn't feel that inspirational to talk about. It just is part of the setting we live in at the moment. Here's a graph of med- median and mean church attendance, um, which, again, can you see the direction of the line? It's not like this, but my point is, I've been working in churches for 20 years, um, as a minister and actually this tends to have been the place which is why I think it feels a bit like exile but this is the part of the picture that's in our faces in New Zealand it's only a part of the picture going to pivot a bit and just talk a little bit about Acts chapter 1 Jesus when he's still on earth he gets together and he spends 40 days hanging around with the followers of Jesus, talking about the kingdom of God. This happens in Acts chapter 1. This is verse 3. And there's an occasion when he says to them, hey, look, um, I'm eating with you, but don't leave Jerusalem. Hang about. Wait for the gift that the Father has promised. You've heard me speak about. um, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they do classic follower of Jesus' behavior. They gather around him and they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking? They're asking, hey, we've got an agenda here. This is what we expect in our agenda, that um, the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Um, When is it going to happen? So will you fit into our agenda, please? And Jesus' response is, well, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his authority. Now let me tell you a bit about my agenda. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Now, when they talk about restore the kingdom of Israel, they are probably thinking of King David and King Solomon. When we were in charge, the Jews were in charge, and everybody looked to us. When are we going to have that again? They're looking back and saying, "Can you ha- Can we have me some of this? And can we have it now?" And his response is, "No, no, no not not like that. No, no. Looking forward, here's what's going to happen." You will be my witnesses. So you're going to. I have a task for you. You're going to report to me from this. And pretty much in Acts, that's what you see unfold, is this steady movement outwards. In the most surprising of ways, who would have guessed it would take persecution for the um, disciples in Jerusalem to spread to other parts. There's all sorts of twists and turns in church history. There is a sense that they didn't expect this. And all the wrong people kept getting keep getting invited into church. Chris Wright says, it's not so much that God has a mission for the church, but God has a church for his mission. Saying, it's not like you're being given an impossible task to do. God is going to do this. Do you want to have a role in it? Okay. We've looked a little bit at New Zealand. We've looked back a bit. Tiny bit more. Sorry for the sporadic nature of this. This is a graph, and it is a surprise to me, of the percentage of the world's population that is Christian going from the year 1900. Is that a surprise to you? It is to me, because what I see is New Zealand. and What it shows is about a third. About a third of the world's population is Christian at the moment. That's why it's still the largest religion in the world. I'm kind of, oh, that's not really what I see here in New Zealand, is it? I see this slow decline, what? Well, here's a graph that tries to show you where the Christians were by continent in 1900, which is, I admit, a fair while ago, and what you'd notice is there's a bit in the south, mostly it's up in the northern hemisphere, they're generous about northern, Um, and where is it found? Well, it's found in Europe and America and, and a bit in Latin America, Yep. How do you think that might have changed? Here's the same graph, looking at 2020. Is it different? You bet it's different. What's happened is that there's still, don't get me wrong, there's still lots of Christians here and lots of Christians here, but as the world population has been growing, Latin America, Africa, and Asia have ballooned. Lots and lots of new Christians there. If you're going to make some st- stereotypes, I seem to have lost my notes, so I'm going to get this slightly wrong, um, about the difference between Christianity here and here, what things might you want to notice? Well, first of all, where would you put us? Probably, even though we're far in the South, we tend to ally ourselves to America and England. Um, when I studied probably 95% of the Christian stuff you read was published in America or England. If you walk into Manna Christian bookshops, well, I'm not sure if this is still true, but uh, five, six years ago, they only imported stuff that had been published in America. And that shaped our thinking. And what is our thinking like in those places? Well... Well, let's make some observations. The West is wealthy. It's not that concerned about inequality. It tends to be very task-driven, not so relational. It has tended to use the language of guilt because, remember, it's very individualistic, so I'm going to talk like that. It's quite dualistic. This is spiritual and this is not. And when you shift... So the areas that are growing now, you'd say some different things. You'd say, well, they're not nearly as well off. If you were in a church in Latin America at the moment, I don't think it would be as comfortable as this. They are poorer, they're less individualistic, they're less task-driven. They tend to think that absolutely everything is spiritual in a way that we tend not to. And this is slightly awkward for us because what that means is that we're slowly starting to hear some other voices, other people are writing besides English and American and European. We're starting to hear critiques of Western ways of being church. We could be accused of whiteness. Well, my skin isn't white, but actually... The accusation is there, it's more that they notice traits about us, how individualistic we are, how we talk about our rights, how we tend to prioritise the rich and powerful without thinking about it, how we sometimes suppress other voices. It's all a bit awkward, I, I, I like this cartoon, hey, I'm a male, white, middle-aged man. That's strange, I remember it differently in a way that aligns with my worldview and casts me in a positive light. Um, there's a risk of that particularly at a time where it's an election year we're hearing race cards being played at the moment and that will make us move shift uncomfortably and actually our history is not made of heroes and villains no race is a hero or a villain we're people it's easy to find ourselves in the, and we look it's so woven in us people joke about the white Jesus but you know in the 1980s when I became a Christian I never would have thought of it. there's Jesus, that's obviously Jesus now I look at him and think he's quite American and well groomed for a Jesus character isn't he there's a pretty much, much more famous one in the game, that's clearly a Caucasian Jesus that's one of the reasons why I often play clips from the Lumo series um, this guy is Lebanese in background so he's not a Westerner, and of course, this is the famous picture um, the BBC had of a Jesus where they tried to figure out what would Jesus look like, and they had some fun trying to figure it out. It's woven in us. We have these spectacles, which mean that we tend to forget. So now I'm going to take a bit of a risk. I, I'm trying to give you an example of where we don't see our cultural glasses. This is Elon Musk. Now, I actually don't know what his net value is and who does know his net value, but a year or two ago it was 255 billion, which is a big number. Okay, Uh, I'm not going to try and say how much. And he paid, um, and now Oxfam have just produced a report that tells you, um, has a look at tax rates. They calculate that he paid a true tax rate of about 3% between 2014 and 2018. So he has $255 billion, and in terms of income coming in, he paid 3%. Now, this is Abner Christine. Actually, it's not her. It's a generic picture. My apologies to Abner. Um, she's a flower vendor in Uganda. She makes $80 a month. She pays a tax rate of 40%. Now, just to um, kind of highlight that... That means for every, if you had $100, and Elon Musk has many $100, then he would pay $3. three And if Abner had a really good month and made $100, she would pay $40 in tax. Now, Oxfam put this up to say, it's possible to argue that Elon provides much more employment, which he does, and gives more money away. I'm sure if you have $255 billion, you can give money away. Oxfam point out that worldwide only four cents in every tax dollar now comes from taxes on wealth. Four cents in every dollar. Half the world's billionaires live in countries with no inheritance tax for direct descendants, so they will pass on a five trillion um, dollar tax-free treasure chest to their heirs, which is more than the um, gross domestic product of Africa. Now, why am I putting this up to you? I'm putting this up to you because actually this is a product largely of Western thinking. But this is our culture. And when I see it, I don't know about you, I'm not speaking for you. <laughs> there are other views to this. I go, oh, this doesn't match what I think is fair. Okay? Go a step further. Does it match what the biblical writers would say is fair? No, it doesn't. And in my culture, we would tend to say, oh, that's not, just, that's not spiritual. That's just you know, that's how the market works. You know, hear that kind of language? But actually, no, everything is spiritual. And the Bible doesn't regard justice and inequality as non-spiritual. We tend to be blind to where our culture clashes with the Jesus culture of Jesus, the kingdom culture of Jesus. So I put this up to you not to make you go, oh, though I would recommend having a look at the Oxfam report on income. But to say, listen, we tend to be blind to the cultures that aren't ours. And maybe, it's just possibly maybe, that there's a gift in other cultures. In the book of Revelation, three or four times it talks about every nation and every tribe is present. What that tells you Um, in some cases it says every language what that tells you is those things matter to God maybe there's some contribution to each and so one of the things that's happening in Christianity today and this is going to is that well a bunch of us who live in the West are starting to look for people who are writing Christian writers from Asia from Africa from Latin America from different places and saying how do you see things? can we hear your voice? in the past those voices have been largely ignored But suddenly we're going, oh, maybe you guys have got something really significant to say to us. Maybe there's things that we can't see because we've got these blinkers on of our culture. Which in a funny way brings me back to the start. This is the language in our mission statement that talks about mission. Together speaking gospel renewal, noticing where God is at work. Connecting, creating and connecting, events with, creating and connecting events with others, seeing if we can recognise this isn't about us necessarily being right, but being in the space where you could listen to each other, encouraging new faith and belief in Jesus and partnering. And all of this is language which is kind of about, hey, maybe I don't have everything right. I have some things right. I am still... Absolutely passionate about Jesus and the change Jesus makes in people's lives. Best thing ever. Absolutely passionate. But maybe I don't have everything 100% light. And in my time, I've seen some places where that's clear. And remembering Kelly's story from last week, we never really get past Jesus help us in this. What have I tried to show you? I've tried to show you First of all, there's a big picture of God's story, and we're in it. And it's a good story. Yep, I'm going to have to press this one. Of origins, ex- uh, exodus, exile, the Messiah, the Spirit, and of home. And that in any point in your time, you will find parts of your life that resonate with sections of this but that is the promise is of hope and home for all of us, for all tribes, all nations. I've tried to show you that, actually, it's still this some real challenges living as a Christian in New Zealand. The feeling is not of, ah, oh, we are conquering here. But that is a deceptive feeling because when you zoom back and you look at the world, you can say, actually, no, Christianity continues to occupy about a third of the world's population. Now, I'd like to see it occupy more. But what I'd really like to see is God doing what God wants with this, which is to draw all people into a relationship with Him. I'm not sure necessarily that I know the best way for that. For now, I'd say there's something in the language of connection. Of a long siding, of dialogue. There's something in the recognition that you bringing Jesus to people doesn't make you Mr. or Mrs. or Miss Wright, who has all the answers, but maybe somebody who has answers that are precious, but might need to learn a bit from others. Sorry if this seems a bit incoherent. We've tried to do New Zealand the world, and look at God's big story. I'd like to pray, and have we got a last song, Kelly? What's that? We do? Excellent. So I'll pray, and can the team come up, and we'll do a a last prayer. Another song. Um, It is a relief, God, to see that it's your job. You are interested in changing this world, and that the end of the story is good. The God who holds history promises good things. It's hard to live at a time when we don't necessarily see the church exploding with new faith. We would love that to be different. And we recognize there are things we can't see in ourselves. So, what we ask is give us honesty. Place us in relationships around where we can be honest, where we can witness to this is what my experiences are. But give us also the learning hearts that are willing to hear, oh, here is the spirit working outside where I expect. And instead of fighting to be right, God, we pray you give us the courage to admit when we are not right, to learn and to become more And more aligned to you, reflecting your glory. Amen.